for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the most comprehensive refund protection anywhere in the world. To find out how working with the global leader in refund protection can provide your customers with a better buying experience, more peace of mind in their purchases, and how you can create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. My guest today is a guy by the name of Sam Sherman, who is the CEO of Broker Genius. Um, we had a really great conversation because uh, Broker Genius is a uh, pricing platform that works to bring uh, better pricing to the secondary market. Um, I try to, um, you know, not necessarily have all brokers all the time on. Um, or when I do have somebody on who's involved in the secondary market, I try to have like a little bit different conversation. And, and Sam was happy to oblige me on this. Um, we talked a lot about regulation on the ticket marketplace. We talked about, um, you know, commodities and tickets and, you know, how or why they are commodities um, or why not a commodity. We talked about pricing technology. We talked about mature markets. We talked about the proper uses of data in tickets. We talked about um, how consolidation in the secondary market is impacting consumers and the overall ticket market. We talked about supply. We talked about competition. Uh, we talked about some of the investments they've made and some of the decisions and new strategic directions they're going to take. We talked about um, analyzing uh, data. We, talk, I mean, we talked about a really wide range of topics. And I think that you're going to uh, really come away from this conversation with a much different perspective on what Broker Genius is up to. And I think you'll also have a little bit of a different idea about some of the stuff that the secondary market does that adds value to the ticketing ecosystem. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sam Sherman. I want to welcome Sam Sherman from Broker Genius to the Business Fun Podcast. Sam, how's it going today? Yeah, doing well, Dave. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm I'm doing all right. It's uh Friday afternoon, Friday morning as we're recording this, so it can't be too bad. Um, but thank you for doing this. I really have been looking forward to having a conversation with you. I think it's going to be informative for the audience, and um, hopefully, we'll give them something good to listen to. So, um, I want to start out by talking to you about. Um, the promise of Broker Genius, because if people aren't aware, recently you just hired, brought in a new president, a guy called Paulo Kaiser. Kaiser, am I saying I'm probably saying Yeah, that. Paul, Paul, Paulo Kaiser, that's right. Uh, Kaiser, yeah. Um, and that signaled to me that you guys are um, probably doing a lot of interesting things, right? Because most of the time, if you're making a big hire like this, it means that you have a, um, you know, a new strategic focus and you're focusing on some new stuff. Um, sure. Outside of me sounding like I'm doing an adver advertisement for you, uh, what led to the hiring of Apollo and kind of what, what's the direction Broker Genius is um, going now and what are you up to? Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly a big deal to, haul, to, uh, to hire Apollo. Um, we went through a pretty exhaustive process to, to try to find the right president for this company. Um, and um, we're really, really excited that, uh, that we got Paulo in the end. He's been with the company for a little less than two months, but it's just he's done some extraordinary things. And uh, it's, it's allowed me to focus on the things that I wanted to focus on, too. So it's really a partnership between the two of us. And I'll explain that. But um, the driving force behind looking for a president was that we had experienced tremendous growth um, you know, in the four or five years that led up. Uh, we started in 2013, um, and we were obviously a very small company, just a few people and a few developers, and you know, gained some traction, hired you know, Zach, uh, Zach Elman as my VP of sales. We were still in my basement at that point, 2013, 2014, um, started to gain some market traction, grew, and we continued to grow at a pretty rapid pace. But in 2017, we went from a staff of about uh, 35 to over 100 uh, within a year. Um, and so at that point, the operation itself, we were doing so many things. And in order for us to execute well on the different initiatives and strategies that we have um, ahead of us, we I knew that we needed to bring in an all-star 
on the operations side, somebody that operations strategy, but was able to had a track record, number one, of having done this many times before, um, somebody that I worked very well with and had very good chemistry with. And so that the partnership would be that, and obviously it's not just the two of us, the whole broker genius team um, all play essential roles. But in terms of our partnership, it's that I am on the forward facing um, new products, new business partnerships um, from a marketing perspective, from looking at the market, what's not there and what needs to be implemented. Um, and that I have Paulo, Paulo's expertise on the um, on the strategy, on, on the execution side. Um, and that was really the driving force. Now, what are the, what are some of those things that we're really excited about? So obviously the pricing technology itself is what we built our company off of. Um, but as the market has really matured, um, the needs for a broker are continuing to evolve specifically in areas of data um, and being able to utilize data and analytics better to power their business, to make better and more informed decisions, um, and also to make sure that they're doing a better job of getting rid of inventory that's not profitable, especially with the changes to the primary market, where a lot of dynamic pricing that's happening on the primary market is squeezing out margins in many cases and leading to what has traditionally been profitable inventory to sell at losses. So brokers need to be a lot more sophisticated in the way that they analyze whether they want to buy inventory, how they buy inventory. Um, brokers are starting to do a lot more of secondary to secondary trading using data um, from the secondary markets and the primary markets to be able to arbitrage opportunities and trade in, trade. Um, inventory. And, and so the ticket industry now is becoming and starting to look a lot more like a commodities market, which is really the way that we've always approached the market, that tickets are a commodity. And so this evolution now um, with these the need for data is really where Broker Genius is focusing a lot of its uh, resources in terms of R&D, um, data scientists, data engineers. Um, we have a huge, robust set of data with a lot of our partnerships and been having obviously done, done pricing now for, uh, for five years. Um, we want to be able to take a lot of this very rich data and give it back to our customers in a way that our, the Broker Genius members have a huge competitive advantage going forward in terms of being able to uh, access tools that allow them to buy better, um, to be able to analyze markets better, to price better. Uh, and that's really the, the big focus that we have in, uh, in 2019. Okay. Let me, and let me back it up here a little bit. Cause you talked about always viewing the ticket market as a commodities market, which to an extent I think is true. Right. And I, and, and part of the question I want to ask you, and maybe this is like an interesting part of the discussion for us is that, to me, it seems like part of the challenge that we are facing right now is that the ticket market has become a commodity market, and but to an extent that it's become detrimental to the health of the environment. Because, I mean, I'm sure you and I both look at the same, watch similar games and watch similar things, and we see just so many empty seats in so many different places. Um, and I know that. I have a lot of people from the primary side that listen to this the same way I have a lot of people from the secondary side that listen to this podcast. If I'm on the primary side right now and I hear a broker talk about commodities, commoditizing tickets, that's going to make me angry. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how do you know, is there, I guess, I, I don't know if I'm going to phrase the question the right way, but is there a way that like you can still operate as a commodity market, but at the same time, you also leave room for some, you know, some of these experiential things and some of the things that drive demand. Because I think, and this is my opinion, if it's a straight commodity market, then there's really no, you know, it's, you're leading, you're just walking down a path to boom or bust all the time. And I'm curious how you feel about that. Sure. So, you know, I, I do view tickets as a commodity. Um, it's a, it's a commodity with multi variables. Um, so it's not a straight commodity like a barrel of oil or corn or whatever, um, that it's the same unit. So tickets have different attributes 
And because of those attributes, they have somewhat different values. But essentially, if you look down at the data, so if you look at Madison Square Garden for, let's say, uh, a Knicks game, then with enough data, you can start to understand based off of actual transaction prices, the way that buyers approach the market that, you know, a ticket that for a B game that will sell for $100 might be, you know, center court and row 14 might have the same value as baseline row one. And there are, the point is that there are different values um, that, that basically create that commodity. And so when you're pricing a ticket, the bottom line is that you're trying to sell your ticket at a point in the market that you want to get that transaction from the buyer. So what you're competing for at that point is really price. Um, and you're trying to make sure that your tickets are priced at a point based off of that point in time that you're going to sell it and it's going to be a better outcome than if you sell it in a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, so the, the point is that in a market that is commoditized, you also have the other market dynamics at play. So the market dynamics here are supply. And so if you look at the primary market, the primary market, if they are um, using multiple ticket brokers to distribute their secondary market inventory, then how much secondary market inventory goes on StubHub, Vivid Seats, and all the marketplaces is going to really be the main driver of how those tickets are going to sell. Simply put, if there's an oversaturation of supply and you have many people competing to sell this expiring commodity, which is a big difference between our commodity and other commodities. So an expiring, which is really a future, but an expiring commodity means, listen, I spent $150 on, on this ticket and in a situation where I don't get any credit back from the team, if it goes unsold, then I need to sell my ticket for whatever value I can. So an expiring commodity has its own set of market conditions, which is what creates the secondary ticket market. Um, so the total amount of supply in an oversaturated market, no matter what you do, you're going to have spoilage. And, um, and that's something that every broker that, you know, that's been in the industry for a while has seen many times. Um, whether it's sports season ticket you know, inventory, whether it's certain tours that were overbought and there wasn't enough demand for. Um, so at its, at its core, the secondary market's just an amazing market to watch because fundamentally it's so simply supply and demand. Um, and so, you know, no matter what you what you do to try to control it, if in a market that's a free market, the market will ultimately dictate what that price or the total amount of yield um, would be produced for a particular show. Um, what's happened over the past two to three years is that teams have started to experiment more with consolidation. Um, and so a, a really good example of this is the Dodgers this year, which pretty much every broker uh, that I've spoken to in the market was all rooting, uh, we're all rooting against the Dodgers this year. Um, because many, many brokers lost their Dodgers you know, positions that they had been holding on to for, for many, many years. Um, and so the Dodgers signed with a company that they took the entire secondary allotment, which was a significant amount of money um, that had to be upfronted. And they allowed one broker to control pricing on the secondary market. Now, there are pros and cons to that. Um, the, the pros are that the, just like the primary market, if they're the ones setting the price, they're not competing with anybody else. When, when let's say the content rights holders, let's say it's a sports team, if it's the New York Giants, for example. So they're pricing their inventory the way that they want to price their inventory, and they're controlling all of their primary market supply. Um, so that same market condition will also exist in an environment on the secondary if the broker is the only one controlling the supply. And so there it becomes a question on working with a team if the team is focused more on yield and they don't necessarily care as much about butts and seats to one of the points that you raised earlier than if they say, okay, well, we would rather keep tickets at $20 for C games, right? 
and the get-ins will never go below below 20. I'm just making up a number, right? So if the market demand for filling up, you know, let's say, or selling 20,000 seats was really at a $10 get-in, and you're pricing it at a 20, and of course there's a lot of different tickets with a lot of different prices. I'm just using, you know, one one um, type of ticket to, to get the point across. Then you can achieve selling less volume and getting more dollars in many cases. However, is that good for the brand? Is that good for the team? A lot of people would say no, because at the end of the day, part of the long-term um, outlook of how the ticket market will play out, you have the the consumers, uh, people that are you know fans of the Dodgers that are trying to take their kids out, and a lot of fans can't necessarily afford those twenty, thirty, or forty dollar ticket prices, and they need to wait until the market is at six, seven, or eight dollars. So, if you're creating a situation where you're fo- focused more on yield, and you can still get more dollars in that in that scenario then you still have to worry about your brand and you still have to worry about, well, now I took away the, the positives where people do have an ability to go for a really, really cheap ticket price. And so these are all, these are all kind of in the experiment, experiential phase um, where teams are still looking at how that plays out. Um, but, you know, those are the, the conditions that I see where the, the fact that tickets are a commodity Really, you've got the supply and demand. You've got how many players are controlling that supply. And those those are the factors that really create what I call this commodity um, market on the secondary market. Yeah, and, and I like the explanation because it's, you know, commodity usually is means like, you know, you're selling oil and every barrel of oil looks the same. But you, you actually, what you describe is much more complex. And one of the things that's really interesting that you brought up was the idea of pricing and considering that, you know, looking at yield from many different vantage points, because that's one of the challenges that, you know, I scream from the rooftop all the time about is that, hey, look, sure, you want to keep the price integrity of your tickets, but at the same token, an empty seat is a you know, is a bullet to your brand because it destroy you know, it destroys the things. If you have tens of thousands of empty seats each game and you, but you didn't sell any tickets for five bucks, you know, what have you really accomplished? Well, you, you've, you know, you may have maintained integrity because you have a consolidator, but at the same time, you've ruined the experience for the people who are there. Um, you've lost out on incremental revenue that would have been generated from other revenue sources that potentially you could have gained if they were at the stadium. You know, there's all these different things. So it is, um, you know, the way you explained it as a more complex sort of commodity, um, you, you know, is interesting because, you know, I don't often hear it explained in such a way, um, you know, yeah. and I think people really have to consider this. And the idea that teams are more and more um, willing to work with consolidators is interesting because, you know, it is a fairly new phenomenon. And, um Recently, there was a, a back and forth on the Twitters that um, that I, I loosely got involved in, but I stayed I pretty I stayed pretty clear of it. Um, you know, which was like one one group of people is telling you that um, these deals don't work at all, right? They're completely they don't work. And then there's another side, you know, and it obviously it depends like everything on which side of the process you're looking to make money from that they do work constantly. My guess is that in most of these things is that like they're 50, 50 bets at, at, at best. Right. Um, you know, and I see a lot of them that I go, I would never make that deal. And then I see other ones that I go, eh, you know, they probably, they probably paid off, you know, what, you being a, as far as like a pricing expert, you know, how do you feel about the, you know, whether or not these consolidation deals are working or not, you know, for both the, the consolidators and, and the teams, because, you know, I, I I do struggle with whether or not they, they really do create value for the t- in the ticket ecosystem or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very fair question. And I think that there are certainly situations where you can argue that, that it's added value to the team, at least in the short term. Um, the long term, as we kind of spoke about, what does that what is the effect on the customer loyalty um, is something that is going to have to be measured over years. 
Uh, but if you're looking at it at just as you know, one year, does this make sense for the consolidator of the team? Certain deals have made sense. Um, if you're looking just at, at economics, and certain deals don't make any sense at all. And when I say don't make any sense at all, I'm talking about if you have all the data in front of you to really evaluate a deal based off of the upside in a scenario that the team performs well, um, based off the downside scenario where the team is not in a playoff run, and you're looking at data to be able to evaluate that and you're looking at your upside compared to your downside so then you can just make an educated decision so if your upside is to make 15 15 percent um if they let's say make a playoff run and your downside is to lose 35 percent most people would say that's a really bad deal right um and obviously there's the probability that goes on both sides but i think that's where many brokers that we've spoken to have seen a lot of different deals and have ultimately decided, even if they have the opportunity, not to partake in them because they are or to participate in them because of the fact that the economics are not on their side. Um, and I think that in many cases, the content rights holders, which makes tons of sense for, for them, if they're in a position because of the competitive nature to be able to drive the deal up where it's much slanted and it's much more favorable for them, then obviously it makes sense for them to do that. Um, but that creates an environment then that in the short term, they're going to get the highest bidders going to pay up for that deal. But if they're not making money in the long term, then it's not sustainable. And we've already seen that with several players that were doing a lot more um, of these types of deals that have kind of really you know, backed away from them because it hasn't worked out so well. Um, so in terms of is, consolidate, is consolidation working or not, what I would say is that there are certainly deals that it has worked out for. There is the long-term effect um, where you look at butts and seats and you look at how, you know, is that going to affect the brand? Is the fact that you're, you know, controlling pricing and taking away some opportunity um, for people that don't have the means to go to games, is that going to hurt their, their brand? Those are things that, you know, they need to be considered and they need to kind of play out over the, the coming years to see the, uh, the overall effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm always frustrated because I, I feel that some of the pricing decisions that get made are um, they're trying to price every game like it's the seventh game of the World Series, you know, and I'm fond of saying if everything is premium, then nothing is premium. And, and it seems that uh, too often it gets skewed to like where everything's a premium mindset. Right. And, and, and there and then, you know, nothing becomes premium. And then I think that's where we where we see the challenge come up of tons and tons of empty seats. Um, these like kind of um, like, you know, not very well considered price floors, you know, stuff like that. Um, which leads me to something you brought up at the very start when I asked you to explain what you guys are up to, which is talking about data, right? And again, historically, I know that you have been a, you know, expert at pricing and you've done a great job of pricing. But what you talk, brought up was data and using it to make better decisions. Um, and one of the things that I see as somebody who talks to a lot of people about data, you know, because big data, obviously, is like the, the huge, tremendous buzzword right now is a kind of over-reliance on data in a way that I don't think helps people make very good decisions. Um, I've kind of brought it up here on the podcast several times is like, you know, people often use data to make a, deci make a decision, um, decision be damned, right? Which is like the data says this, and I'm going to just chase that data no matter what. And from my point of view is that it's better to have a hypothesis that you use the data to test and, um, I'm curious how you confront that same challenge when you're talking sure. and thinking about data. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned several really important points. Um, I think that, you know, there is always an emotional attachment or very often an emotional attachment to a ticket, especially if it's, you know, sports inventory, um, that, the, there's a very dangerous uh, drug that we like to, to kind of joke about called hopium, which basically you one time made a sale for a certain seat for $400 um, because some buyer, you know, bought that, but, you know, that was kind of a one in a, a thousand sale and you're kind of chasing that. Um, so certainly there is that element to where you're looking at, hey, can I get this huge upside and doing it to a point that hurts your overall return? 
Um, but I think that one of the most important points to kind of uh, bring up here is that in a free market, which is so important that we have a free market, um, and we'll talk more about that maybe later in the podcast, but in a free market where there's multiple um, sellers, it's not the sellers that control the price. It's the buyers. Because at the end of the day, if you have bought inventory to a particular event, because it's an expiring commodity that is worth zero after the event starts or 30 minutes after the event starts, depending on you know, what the exchanges will allow, but that that commodity is worth zero. You need to sell your ticket. And so ultimately, even if everybody tries to keep their prices up to a point that there is no buyer demand for, at least to sell the overall supply, right? If you've got a thousand tickets, let's call it, a, let's just take a GA show because that's like, you don't, you know, it's the simplest way to understand it, right? Every ticket is the same, same ticket. So in a GA show, if you've got a thousand tickets and you try to keep prices up to, let's say, 150 bucks, right? And the demand for selling those thousand tickets is really at $70. You could keep your tickets at 150 and say, okay, anybody that buys is going to spend 150 and you'll get some sales. But the overall supply that you're going to sell is going to be significantly less if the buyer demand is not there at that $150 price point. So ultimately, it's the buyers that that control, um, when I say control, that dictate what the overall demand is going to be for a particular event. And so that's why in a free market where there's a competitive nature with an expiring commodity, then you're going to get a lot more market efficiency there as it relates to what the, the market would dictate. If you control the price, it's a totally different story. But then again, on the flip side, you have all the problems that we already mentioned um, previously. So, you know, in my view, a free market is the best way to have real efficiency in the market. Um, and, um, and that's where, if you look at from a data perspective, which is the other, one other point that you brought up there, uh, how do brokers, do they overanalyze data? Are they chasing the wrong price? The tools that they need are going to be tools that say, listen, this is how historically this event has sold. And that's not going to tell them if you, if you take like a look at the difference between an AI versus an analytical tool. So if the AI is pricing it right or machine learning, then, you know, you can potentially get a lot of efficiency or you can get prices that are all over the place, um, which we've seen in a lot of industries that have tried to implement AI and machine learning. Um, not that they are not effective in many cases, but the point is that what I believe to be the right recipe for our industry is good analytic tools that allow the human being to be in the driver's seat to make their decision. And so those are, that's the way that we're approaching this. And by the way, that wasn't always the case. Like two or three years ago, I invested heavily into machine learning and into AI, um, thinking that that would be a better result. And what I learned back then was that you really need the human element. There's just, at least for now, it's very hard to replace the understanding a market because you've seen it multiple times understanding how, you know, a playoff run or a certain matchup or any of that stuff. Yes, you can program it. You can look at pitching matchups and historicals and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, the human mind, the, the reason that the human mind is so powerful when it comes to analyzing data is because we're very, very good at pattern recognition. That's where our cognitive abilities, We what's, what's the gut that people say, oh, I, I have a feeling that this market's going to go up. And, and more often than not, they're, they're right. Like, what's that gut based off of? That gut is based off of pattern recognition. That's it's based off of, I've, I've seen this before in these scenarios. I'm not necessarily thinking about all of those scenarios, but my mind is catching that. So to me, what we're trying to do is to take that and put that into a tool that allows them to just see it more tangibly and then make better decisions. But ultimately... You, you need to make sure, at least for us, we want to make sure that the tools that we provide aren't overly complex so that they get lost in the data. We want to give them the right tools that are easy to digest the data and that they can make informed decisions. And then ultimately, yeah, you could have the same, you know, five brokers selling the same inventory, looking at the same data and come up with five different decisions based on their risk appetite and so on. 
Um, but ultimately, I think the important thing here is to provide the the tools to look at trends and allow them to just more easily digest what they can analyze properly. No, no, no. You, you, you couldn't have explained it any better because, you know, again, again, your I think your explanation highlights what I, what I would say, which is that tech is a tool that assists people, not a tool to replace people. Um, right. You were talking about like having gut, right? And I go back to there was a show and people who are interested in looking it up can Google this show called The Frogs and it starred Nathan Lane and Chris Kattan. And nobody wanted to touch this thing. And I was like, oh, it's going to be great, right? There was, um, and so it was at Lincoln Center and we bought, we invested in tickets because at the time I was working with American Express and that was part of um, the black card. And that was part of the deal was making sure that the card members had access to things that they wanted. And then all of a sudden it became hot because people realized it was Chris Kattan and Nathan Lane. And I was like, and there were people, you know, my boss at the time, Jonathan Radler, was like, oh, you should get, we should get more of the frogs. And I was like, it's going to go bust. I guarantee it, right? And I had data that said we had ma- been making huge uh, returns on on our investment in the frogs. The data would have told you that you should have definitely invested in it. But the data combined with gut told me not to invest. And we saved and we, we ended up making a sizable return on the investment and we ended up not buying more and people lost tons and tons of money on the show. Um, and again, that's that's using data to, to along with the, hu- the human aspect to make better decisions, which is exactly what you said, which I couldn't agree with more because I think if you rely too much on any one tool or one way of looking at the market or uh, your business or whatever, I think you set yourself up to fail because, I mean, that's what's the great thing about the world we live in is that there's multiple inputs and the pattern recognition like you talked about should enable us to be more selective uh, and become better over time of recognizing patterns um, earlier. Uh, you know, it, I mean, it's what I hope for, but that, you know, that's me. What do, I'm, sure. what do I know, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely hear what you're saying. I definitely agree with that. I, I think that a lot of, a lot of this also for us goes back to what I was, you know, I made that big investment about two, three years ago into um, the data science component, which is still an investment that we're making now on the engineering side, but it's more focused on, the, the tooling um, versus the, you know, hey, we're going to uh, automatically change the price in the future to a point that we think the ticket's going to be. Part of that, by the way, is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you need, you can, you know, if you're pr- predicting that based off of, let's say, velocity, um, 47 days to the event, I see that tickets historically over the last, you know, rolling 10 days are selling 1.7% per day. If I look at other events on the similar venue and I look at how much supplies in the market, I can predict that it's going to thin out and therefore the market's going to uptick within five to seven days of the event. So all of that data could be accurate. But if you're, if the same AI is doing it and then you're raising price, for example, let's say the price is at 60 and you're like, oh, well, you know, at the end, it's going to uptick to 85. And so we're going to peg the price right now to somewhere in between. If that's the way that the algorithm you know, chooses it, then you're raising prices to a point right now that there may not be enough buyer demand at, and therefore not enough supply is going to sell, and therefore in the end, too much supply is left on the market, not leaving enough room for the market to uptake. And you have the same problem, the same concept, by the way, when it comes to the primary market, looking um, at, you know, data and looking at secondary market data to peg their primary market prices. Because oftentimes what they're not taking into consideration, especially in the case of Hamilton or other shows like that, are, okay, you've got a venue that holds X amount. So if you look at the secondary market, let's just say that in Gershwin Theater or wherever you've got total, you know, you've got 2,000 seats. And then if you look at secondary market data, the secondary market data says that on the 780 seats that sold for that show, and I'm making up these numbers, right? The 780 seats sold for, let's say, you know, an average of $1,150 and, you know, orchestra sold for this and and balcony sold for this and so Okay. Now, if I take that same data input and say, okay, I'm going to take those same average prices and I'm going to, you know, put them into each proper, you know, zone and section and row and I'm going to price them like that on the primary. Well, guess what? You're missing out on the most critical point, which is that 1,220 of the 2,000 seats sold for $300 to people that actually went to it. 
So if you look at the overall demand curve and you say that 780 people are willing to spend, let's call it an average of $1,100, that may be true. But that may not be true for 2000 if you're pricing it and trying to price the entire market based off of the secondary and control all the price of the primary. And I've seen many, many cases this way where they're missing those components. You need to understand or whoever's doing it needs to understand what the demand curve is, what the demand is for expensive seats for a particular show. And each point in time, 60 days to the event, 30 days to the event, 15 days to the event. I mean, all of that data is extremely important. Um, and if you if you don't look at the whole picture and, you know, this is an example where you're only looking, let's say, at secondary, but you're missing critical components, you can price it completely wrong, which means that you're going to end up with a lot of excess supply that you've got to get rid of in whatever ways they, they need to be able to market it. Um, and there have been primary market artists that have done the same thing, by the way. Their price is up. And then they then they had to distribute distribute the inventory, you know, by giving a thousand tickets to local radio shows to give away and, and means like that in order to make sure that they fill up their seats because they have, you know, more supply. But anyways, I, I digress there. So. No, no, no. That That's a really interesting way of, of talking about it, too, because one of the things, the challenges I see and you, you brought up some completely made up numbers. So I want everybody to be um, aware of that because I don't want them to think that we're like really pulling out data. But what you did was what I also so know that like a lot of times is used for making up the numbers for the prices is it's completely made up numbers, right? Because a lot of times you have to trust that the data you're getting is either true or relevant. And like you said, the decision-making process isn't necessarily always up to par because sometimes you're not getting relevant data or you're not getting you know accurate data or you're not just getting... Um, you know, you're getting data that's, you know, faulty for some, re you know, for some kind of bias in the way that it was collected. You know, and, and I think that's really important because there is such, you know, it goes back to a word you used earlier, emotional, right? There's an emotional attachment to the ticket. There's an emotional attachment to going to a game. There's an emotional attachment going to a concert. And I think that, you know, just trying to price in a vacuum is can often lead to, again, poor decision-making, right? It's unwise decisions because you aren't factoring in the emotional connection. You're not factoring in the demand curve. You're not factoring in all of these external factors, right? Like you used the example of maybe three, uh, 30% or whatever of the house being sold at $300 or less. You know, you have to really, like, it's a complicated formula that, that people are dealing with, and it's not often... You know, I think people try to boil it down to like X equals Y all too often. Right. I mean, you know, and, and, and I don't know how you, you change that, but it does sort of um, bring up the idea of some of the interesting things that I know we talked about just a second before we started the podcast, which is like some of the regulations um, and some of the regulatory actions that are being considered right now. Right. And, I, and most uh, notably being um, in February or March of next year, 2019, uh, the FTC wants to have a and I'm using air quotes here workshop on on Ticketmaster and how you can rectify uh, sort of fix the ticket market. Um, but some of these regulations and some of these ideas that are pushing the regulations, again, I feel they're being influenced by sort of faulty data. Um, I'm interested to hear about what you think about the regulatory climate and some of the actions that are being considered right now to put uh, clamps on free markets and competition. Yeah, so it's a great, great point. I mean, you know, we uh, we've had the opportunity um, because we're in New York to be, uh, you know, supporters, crowd supporters of the coalition for ticket fairness, um, who does a really good job of lobbying, of making sure that they're educating um, Albany on what's going on. And there have been a lot of there's been a lot of chatter there, and they, they've uh, you know they're taking it upon themselves to make sure that people are not dealing with faulty information. One of the things that was interesting was that we were we were able to pull data that was really impactful um, towards uh, people that were in the Senate um, that were in local government to be able to show them that over forty percent of tickets in many categories sell for well under face value because of the secondary market. And some of these, you know, state senators, they, they had no idea, um, local Congress, they had no idea that 
there's so many seats because of the secondary market. We're selling way below face, creating opportunities for you know what we spoke about before, families that can't afford to spend prices that the primary market is pricing them at. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity that's created because of the secondary market in the climate that we're in because of it's an expiring commodity and because there's competition and oftentimes that creates situations where ticket brokers lose money, right? Which, which means that the buyer is getting in at a much better price, but net net brokers in a free market can still make a living, can still make a nice living. It's not the type of thing where, you know, the perception that brokers are just printing out money and, you know, brokers work very, very hard for a living. We know that firsthand. Um, most ticket brokers and, you know, the clients that we deal with, these are honorable people. Um, the secondary market gets a really bad rap because, you know, the bots, which we are absolutely not supportive of, um, bots that buy up all the inventory um, and don't give fair opportunity for fans and for other people to be able to buy, it's, it's really bad for the industry as a whole. But that's not at all the representative of, of the uh, ticket broker market. Um, and so, you know, the, the fact that we are, you know, in a situation where the there's going to be an FTC workshop, I think that's good because we, we need to be able to, as an industry, um, educate people as to what's really happening in the market, just completely transparently. This is what happened. This is what a ticket broker looks like. This is what the secondary market looks like. This is why it's good for consumers. And at the end of the day, it relates to what we spoke about in the beginning, which is that tickets are a commodity. It's a free market. What other market that we that we can look can we look at to say it's better if it was not a free market? I mean, like we just need to educate people because I think once we do and people see the benefits that it has for consumers and for the market as a whole to be a much more efficient market that's really based on supply and demand, then I think that at that point, the regulation that will be passed will be positive for the industry. But of course, it's a challenge and it's something that we're very mindful of and we want to participate in um, to make sure people get the right information. Yeah, and you bring up a couple things that are really interesting here, which is number one is that, um, you know, the need for transparency and openness in the market, right? I am very um, much an advocate for, hey, if you don't want your tickets to be traded and sold on the on an open market, right? Then there are tools available to you and there are ways that you can control your ticketing and you can treat your customers in a way like if you want to make sure that tickets get into the hands of your fans in a, in a price that's like you're happy with, but don't capture the full market value or don't allow them to trade that way. You can do something like the Grateful Dead did or back in their day or like Pearl Jam does now, right? Which is they have heavy control and you don't see many of their tickets most of the time on the secondary market. And that's great, right? I know it's hard work and most bands either don't have the fan base or the, the, um, business insight to be able to do this. But if you want to do it and that's your big bugaboo, good luck. Here's the tools are the, the, the tools in the business model are there. But number two is more importantly, is that the secondary market, at least in the United States, and a lot of people listen to this thing all over the world, plays a vital role in the U S ticket market, because with so much influence and power by Ticketmaster and Live Nation, the, the if they don't do a very good job of marketing and promoting your show, then you're dead in the water. If they don't do a very good job of selling and marketing your tickets uh, to your game, you're dead in the water. And the secondary market has done a tremendous job of investing in tools and resources that allow um, you know brokers in the secondary market to take advantage of the tools of digital marketing of, you know, SEO, of machine learning and AI, like you talked about before, that aren't always invested in on the primary side. You know, and I think that some of the reasons that people are able to buy tickets and have access to, to events is because of the secondary market. And, and I know that's not always a popular way of putting it, but it's the truth. And I think, you know, educating people so that they know, um, you know, even if you don't agree with the secondary, you don't like the secondary market, then knowing what the secondary market does, you can influence the primary market to, to do the stuff that you want them to do then. Because right now, the only people that benefit from the lack of transparency in the market are the people you know who, who want to keep it muddy so that people don't know what's going on. 
Right. And yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the climate that we're in right now, tickets are something that, um, everybody has some sort of, uh, you know, emotional connection either to their band, to their team, whatever, you know, it, going to live events, um, is something that everybody does. And so the, this perception of, of a broker being someone that's huddled in the alleyways, which I think a lot of people still have that perception is just, it's totally wrong. And I think it's really something that's important. It's important for us. I mean, I've been talking to different people, um, players in the industry that are doing a lot of great things like the NATB is doing a lot of great things. And I'm trying to figure out ways that we can educate um, people uh, in you marketing initiatives to educate the average consumer about what the secondary market really is. And I think that, you know, places like the, the uh, marketplaces like StubHub and Vivid, uh, Vivid Seats have done a phenomenal job of creating um, the marketplaces that, that really are the, the ones that create the opportunities for the secondary market to exist, for ticket brokers to exist. Um, StubHub obviously pioneered the way um, and Vivid Seats has done a really good job of taking um, a lot of market share and, and they're doing a lot of really good things for consumers too um, and for ticket brokers. So the exchanges certainly um, get credit there. And I think that the exchanges to a large degree also um, don't, you know, are, are not given proper credit um, for what they do on the positive side. Um, but, you know, I, I think that as this coming February, uh, is an opportunity for all the uh, players in the secondary market to really come together. You know, everybody has their own interests. There's a lot of times that we don't work together, but this is something that I think we we all need to work on. Whether it's the exchanges, whether it's the um, the tools and and the uh, the third party players in the industry, whether it's the ticket brokers themselves. I think we all need to uh, to kind of come together here and figure out how we can support more places like the tick the the uh, coalition for ticket fairness. Um, and um, and really educate um, the the government as to uh, why the secondary market is a really beneficial thing for the average consumer. Yeah, I, I couldn't probably say it any better because I, I believe that you need to have more people involved in marketing and selling tickets. And I think that if you do that, you're going to have a the consumers are going to have a better experience, and consumers are likely to. Um, have more access to shows and events and the more people that we can get involved, get into shows and events, the better their experience is going to be. The better their experiences be, hopefully that means they're going to go more. If they go more and more people are spending more money, it's going to just be a more valuable environment for everybody. Um, you know, and that's sort of been the gig that I've used now for 15 or more years is that if I can get more people into more shows and more events, then people are going to have better experiences. And if they're going to have better experiences, I'm going to be able to monetize that because they're going to come over and over again. And I think that's like always needs to be the focus. Sure. Sure. And I think that one of the things that uh, we've had discussions here on Broker Genius as to why live event ticketing is just booming like the way that it is, um, especially amongst millennials um, there's a lot of theories. One of the things that, that I kind of have a theory on is that because of social media and how much, you know, that plays a role in all of our lives, but in particular, you know, for, uh, for millennials, um, there is much less human connection. Um, and so I feel like there, the, the willingness to pay a lot more for experiences is, is a, a new phenomenon to the degree that people are willing to do it now. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from just, you know, being so cons- so wrapped up in technology that sometimes going and, and having an experience becomes much more valuable. And that's something that I think will continue to your point. Um, so it, it's, I think that the, the future of the event ticketing market is very, very bright. Um, and I think we just all need to do a good job of making sure that, um, that people, that the regulators understand it well. Um, but I do think it's something that's really important for our industry, especially in 2019. It's going to be a big focus. Uh, it's certainly something that I want to uh, to contribute to the degree that I can on. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think it's going to be a good outcome for everybody. Yeah. In, in the, this happenstance of timeliness, I have been writing an article this morning before we started doing the podcast for Arts Professional in the UK. And I actually used a statistic that shows that experiences are growing five times faster than goods and services in the market. So that backs up the point you just made. Um, 
Sam, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. How can people find more out more about what you and Broker Genius are up to? Sure. So, I mean, people can go to our website, www.brokergenius.com. Um, we have a lot of information there. Um, and certainly they can, you know, email us at you know, sales at brokergenius.com um, to find out more. Um, and we're certainly focused on putting more uh, content out, educational content out to the marketplace. So it's something that I'm working on, um, one of the initiatives for 2019 that we have. Um, so to write thought pieces and educate the consumer market. Um, so we're going to try to do a better job of, of putting more content out there. But in the meantime, we're, we're certainly happy to, uh, to talk you know, and uh, have conversations and, and explain to people what we do. No, that's awesome. Well, uh, Sam, I thank you again for t- taking the time to do the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Sam Sherman from Broker Genius, for taking the time to talk. As always, you can find out about what I'm up to by visiting my website. That's www.davewakeman.com, where you'll find my daily blog. You'll find links to places I've been quoted. You'll find products and workshops and all kinds of stuff that I'm up to. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at David Wakeman. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, if you have any questions, ideas, comments, concerns, any thoughts about what's going on in the podcast, I love to get your emails. You can hit me up at my name. It's Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And finally, if you dig what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. We're on Stitcher, TuneIn, um, SoundCloud, iTunes, all these places, right? Um, subscribe and leave a, uh, leave a review. It really means a lot to me and it helps us continue to deliver really great content that hopefully is adding value to you and the way you approach your business. And finally, I want to think, thank, lastly, once again, I want to thank Booking Protect. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how the global leader in refund protection can help you give your customers more peace of mind, a better buying experience, and you can create a brand new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Take it easy.